Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez and Gary Sheffer and I are looking forward to our discussion with our guest today, Russell Wilkerson, who is the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at one of the world's leading oil and gas field services companies, Baker Hughes. Gary, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Now, we've both known Russ for some time, but he worked with you at GE. What are you most looking forward to in the conversation today? Well, you know, Russ is one of the smartest people I know in this business, and they're right in the middle of all of the things that are going on now with the conclusion of the climate summit in Glasgow COP26 and lots of other things going on related to the future of their industry and the transition. So Russ is really smart about, really smart about that, and I'd love to talk to him about it. Well, look forward to it. But before we get to Russell Wilkerson, let's talk about some items in the news. This past week, I found myself working in Chicago, Gary, and could not escape this story about mm -hmm. an exchange of text messages from back in April of this year that had just come to light between the McDonald's CEO, Chris Kempinski, and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot as a result of a Freedom of Information Act request. In the exchange, the McDonald's CEO commenting on the shooting deaths of two Chicago children. One was a, a, a black girl at the age of seven, and then a, a Latino 13-year-old boy. And at the time, in, the, in his message to the mayor, he made kind of this side comment that the parents had failed those kids. I mean, that was an exact quote, the parents failed those kids. Thanks. When that came to the fore publicly in Chicago, the public went crazy. Great outrage in the community. There are protests scheduled even today at McDonald's corporate campus, calls for Kempinski to step down or be fired from his job as McDonald's CEO. I should add that Kempinski apologized several times as, as this leaked out. Specifically, he told even McDonald's employees this very week, my texts to the mayor of Chicago were wrong, plain and simple. I am truly sorry, and I know I have let you down. I also know this has conflicted with our values, values that you have all worked so hard to embody across the company. Community leaders, as I said, are expected to stage another protest today at McDonald's headquarters. Gary, what lessons are there here for CEOs and communicators? Well, the first and obvious one, Mike, is text and emails are forever, right? Mm. And, and what can be known will be known. Yeah. So yeah. you just have to remember that, that everything internal is external. I don't know the context, Mike, mm -hmm. on why he was commenting to the... I know... McDonald's has done really good things in Chicago, moved downtown, that kind of thing. And, and this CEO had to clean up sort of an ethical mess from his predecessor. I've been impressed with some of the things that he has said and done, but 
Uh, you well, know, one, let... one, one piece of context that, that, that might help you is that it, with the first shooting, I know that the it was like a family in a car at a drive-in. McDonald's, a McDonald's drive-through. Okay. Yeah, and and it, it was a stray bullet. Okay. You know, that that nobody was intending to necessarily kill this kid, but the as a consequence of dealing with this story, and as you said, McDonald's is ever present in the Chicago community. There's a relationship with the city. And so in the context of that, he sent a note. And like you, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, you have to be careful what you always send outside mm. the company, sometimes mm-hmm. even inside of the company. Exactly. And in this day and age too, when you're dealing with a public official, a government official, Everything that goes into a governmental agency, regulatory body, or mayor is usually accessible through a Freedom of Information Act request. A reporter could have just asked for every document between this period and that period, and and then kind of stumbled across this. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of places, can just an average Joe or Jane citizen or Mm. or an activist group. Exactly. And And Mike, I would say... It's regrettable. I mean, it's terrible. But the apology seems sincere to me. Mm-hmm. And and I think asking him to or forcing him to step down, whatever it is, I think based on what I've seen about McDonald's is and what they're committed to, he deserves another chance and, and him specifically. But I would, you know, I would judge him on his actions going forward. Things like sure. $15, $15 an hour minimum wage and other things that help improve the lives of people, particularly in Chicago and, and his employees, et cetera, I would give him another chance, mm-hmm. but I certainly would hold his feet to the fire on the things that matter to the citizens of Chicago. And, and uh, there are a lot of things McDonald's has done and can do to improve, improve the situation there. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. McDonald's has been a good corporate citizen. Yeah. Just underscoring for 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 those who who listen to the program, I, I would just say, you know, you just have to be very careful. Yes, and as you said, things live forever. Yep. When it comes to text and messages in in today's world, and uh, as as one of my former bosses once said, we need to operate as if what we do and say is going to be on the front page of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And speaking of the New York Times, sort of the ne- next thing that caught my eye this week was there's a, there's a very good progressive columnist by the name of Michelle Goldberg. And, and, and she has, you know, she, she has an opinion column in the New York Times. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. But one of the columns this week focused and sort of took to task the American Medical Association and the Association of American Medical Colleges, not about medicine per se, but for this guide that they created that she said, you know, was put together clearly by some earnest people (laughs) to try and guide people in the medical field in the name of advancing health equity. The guide suggests that Black be capitalized when referring to Black people, but it also suggests replacing the modifier vulnerable with oppressed. And the last time I checked, those two words aren't actually easily synonymous. Mm -hmm. From this, Goldberg makes the case that the, and and I quote, 
the existence of this document is evidence of a social problem, though not as the guide instructs us to say, instead of social problem, a social injustice. The problem is this, and she writes, parts of the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry are heavy-handed and feckless, and the left keeps having to answer for them. So what, what she's essentially arguing here is that the guide goes a little bit too far in kind of the PC space. Mm -hmm. You know, the guide says rather than referring to groups as vulnerable or marginalized communities, we should refer to them as groups that have been economically or socially marginalized. The homeless are to be referred to as persons with mobility disability. We're to use social injustice where we might have in the past used fairness. I get that the guide is trying to make sure healthcare professionals and maybe the rest of us too are more sensitive to people and their station in life and, and where they come from so that we do not offend. And, and some of this, you know, I actually agree with. I mean, you know, you look at words like native or indigenous people rather than saying Indian, which doesn't really make historical sense at all and undocumented immigrants rather than illegal immigrants. But Gary, have we moved to a point in time where those of us who are even liberally minded are too PC for our own good as Michelle Goldberg suggests here in her column? And what does this all mean for those of us who work in communications disciplines? Well, Mike, I, I think the answer directly is yes. You know, I'm a lover of language. It's what led me into I know. This, this business. And and I'm a big believer in simple, powerful, clear language. And corporate language today is just killing us, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I, I just, it, it's hard to look at statements that I read. It's like if three words will do, seven words will do better. Exactly. And, and I think you know, the, the legal language had invaded some of our statements over the years. And now this, and as to your point, not all of it is terrible. Some of it is a, very appropriate. But I can think of two, two examples here. Jeff Immelt, my former boss, big believer in, in climate change and calling for things like a carbon tax. And he led a fight and we lost in Washington for some legislation. One of his takeaways was that the language around climate had become too, quote unquote, precious, yeah. right? That, that we had separated ourselves from a whole group of people who wouldn't listen to us because of the words we were using that sounded elite, you know, fancy in his words, precious. And the second reminder for me on this is the great comedian George Carlin who said some controversial things over the years. Those of you who are younger may not remember Carlin, but he was very popular comedian, 60s, 70s, 80s, I guess. And, and he played and, with words tremendously. Yeah, and, and he played great, with words. And, and so well, I knew we were going to talk about this. I looked it up and there was actually, I found a thesis online about George Carlin and language and politically correct language. And his point was, you know, we used to, he, he would say, quoting him, we, people used to live in slums 
Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh -huh. They aren't broke anymore. They have negative cash flow. But go. he had a, he had a point. Not he had a point yeah. to it. it. It was he said it shows how commonly used language can conceal problems that are within the control of people in powerful positions. Yeah, and I at think at some point people just just they their eyes glaze over because they correct. don't know what in the hell we're talking about. Exactly. So the answer to your question is yes. Uh, I I'm with Michelle Goldberg on this. I think we have to reach some understanding on language that is more unifying and less divisive. You know, I I, yeah. I really do think. Yeah, and this I think that was the aim. You know, that was yes. the aim. But yeah, but then it but then it's like, okay, let's redefine this and let's redefine that. Yes. And then all all of a sudden it's like, okay, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and so people stop listening, right? That's and right. we know we know that people you have a very small window to engage people these days. And and I think a lot of this language that window gets closed by people because they don't either understand or they think it's language that's not for yeah. them. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. I think you, you need to make changes for things that are truly offensive. And yep. then other things, you've got to go for simplicity and the power of being understood yes. as opposed to, great way to playing this out in, in, in some ornate way that makes you feel good. But use the example of environment in this space and, and, and talking about uh, Jeff Immelt uh, referring to how sometimes the language is too precious. Let's talk about a story maybe a little bit closer to home relative to the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and that is that in the last week, as COP26 has been drawing to a close, more than 100 celebrities and influencers signed a letter urging Edelman, the world's largest independent PR firm, to stop working with fossil fuel clients. The open letter mentions only one company by name, ExxonMobil, but states ending advertising and PR for fossil fuel companies is a crucial step toward climate justice, is what this letter mm -hmm. says. Edelman, in response, made it clear through its chairman and Richard Edelman that the firm has been unwilling to take on coal companies and organizations that were climate change deniers for years, and that the firm has used its position actually to advance sustainability. Mm -hmm. And then Edelman, just this Monday, launched Edelman Impact, an initiative that brings the agency's ESG, sustainability, purpose, and climate offerings to the forefront of its global business strategy. Anyway, meanwhile, the activists are still there under the banner of clean creatives, and they continue to push for what they refer to as hashtag Edelman Drop Exxon campaign. Gary, from your perspective, is Edelman managing this in the right way? Or are they handling their, as the PR firm, handling PR? <laughs> for themselves well. And two, are the clean creatives being realistic? It seems to me that energy transition is going to take capital and companies like ExxonMobil have capital and if well-intentioned could apply some of that capital to energy transition and to the spiriting on of renewables. Yeah, and the what second, you? Uh, you know, on the second question, I'm looking forward to 
what Russell has to say on this and yeah. you as well, both in the energy industry. I, I do think Edelman has handled it well, even if it's reactive, Mike, mm -hmm. you know, they're mm -hmm. reacting mm -hmm. to something. And I have to say that their track record is one, as you say, they don't handle coal anymore, et cetera. So they've shown a willingness to really take a look at their client roster and, and see what kind of work they want to do. And I, I just see this as a further refinement of that, that uh, maybe they could have seen earlier, but you know, they're, they're doing it now. And let's face it, the, it's a smart play to focus on ESG and impact as they call it, because companies need those kinds of advisory certain and consulting services. So I think it'll be good business for them. I, I, for the clean creative, boy, I always felt like engagement was better than, you know, we, GE would get criticized for doing business in one country or the next. And I always felt like GE being there was a, a good thing, right? Yeah. Engaging with, and, and I, I still think that's the right way is to have relationships, even with people that you might disagree with. And I think Absolutely. the clean, you know, I think the clean creatives ought to continue to work in that in that spirit, and uh, and again, I'm just a big believer, and everybody has sort of a right to not everybody, but a lot. Exxon Mobil does deserve to be represented, right? And and, and ho hopefully that kind of engagement and discussion will lead to maybe changes. Yeah, well, you know, and I think about the experience I had at Cargill, where on one hand, you know, we were working with uh, environmental groups, some of whom, you know, probably in, in previous years and decades had been viewed as the evil empire <laughs> by, by people at Cargill. But as we interacted and engaged with those groups, we were able to, you know, make commitments that made it smarter for us to make sure that we had sustainable practices as we worked with farmers in Brazil dealing with uh, non-GM soy. And the same thing was true about cocoa in uh, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and, and Ghana. And mm -hmm. the same thing yet again when it came to palm oil in Indonesia and the rest of the uh, Southeast Asia. So I, I, I agree with you totally. It's important, one, for companies to listen, but I think it's also important for organizations to also listen and to participate in real discussions that mm -hmm. can lead to real change. And, and Mike, you know better than I do that, look, that's ExxonMobil's not going anywhere. This energy right. transition that we're going through is, is but, going to take time. And, you know, and, and Farid Sakaria had a good spot at the sort of the first week of COP26. You know, he has his, his opinion mm -hmm. spot and he dedicated his opinion spot that week to saying, you know, there's a reason they call it a transition. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, you're not going to press a button and instantly reach nirvana. You have to think through what's the smartest way, you know, do you go ahead and say, oh, you know, what we should be doing is rather than just beating up on something because it's fossil fuel, are there solutions there that actually reduce cli you know, climate warming faster? Mm -hmm. And you get into things like, oh, you could replace coal with 
with natural gas. With natural and, gas, yeah. You know, and we could encourage liquid natural gas so that can be transported to places that are highly dependent on the planet on coal. Right. You know, and that, oh, by the way, we could also blend that with hydrogen. And what does that do? It reduces flaring and it re reduces emissions. Uh, and, and also in operating all of this, isn't there a way to make it, you know, cleaner and safer? And, and instead, it's all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's unfortunate and might actually end up, could very well end up being our own undoing. And unrealistic, absolutely. Now, we talked about your former company just oh, last oh, week. Oh, oh, uh, I'm going to lay it on the floor and cry <laughs> a little here, Mike. But go ahead. Yeah, but you, know, you, you, you actually brought it to the fore. I mean, yeah, GE I announced that it was it, it's splitting into three public companies. It's going to be a healthcare company, a new energy business, and, and an aviation business. Well, now it appears that others are kind of following suit. This past week, Johnson & Johnson announced that it's planning to separate into two companies, one for prescription drugs and medical devices, and the other for its consumer group, which includes you know, brands like Aveeno, Band-Aid, Listerine, Neutrogena, Tylenol. And then later the same day, Toshiba, the Japanese industrial and technology company, announced it was moving to separate its company into three, spinning off its infrastructure service business and its device business as separate companies. So, 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 so Gary, two more companies sort of join the club mm. here. Is, is this a trend we're seeing? I mean, and I look at all three companies have had their share of financial challenges in the last few years. All three have made a case that the changes would better enable each separate business to better focus on core competencies, kind of that pure mm -hmm. play kind of mentality. But J&J &J has faced some high visibility lawsuits in recent years associated with uh, talc and its baby powder. Toshiba has been the subject of an accounting and, and governance scandal since 2015 that involves booking future profits early, push, pushing back losses, all seemingly done to try and improve its earnings in a given cycle, and all seemingly emanating from a corporate culture where it was you know, strict obedience to superiors and it's believed that actually that that sort of environment, that corporate mm -hmm. culture may have enabled some of the fraudulent practices that got them into trouble. So do you see this as the result of those kinds of challenges or is something else at play here? Well, they certainly seem like the right moves given the market preferences, mm -hmm. Mike right now, which is for more clarity, simplicity, single line businesses, the complexity of the corp, the conglomerate model is off-putting to investors who say, I don't want to invest in a healthcare and an energy company. I want to make the choices of where I put my money, what, what industry, et cetera. It's not a panacea. Mm -hmm. I would note that I believe the GE stock is flat or slightly down yeah. since since yeah. the announcement, although a lot of things affect the stock price. I, I don't think, to answer your question, I don't think you would see these companies doing this if they were doing well, Yeah. right? The conglomerate model is it has worked and can work. Mm -hmm. I think Honeywell is, people would still consider Honeywell a conglomerate yeah. of, of sorts and they, they're doing well. It maybe is a little more tightly focused 
clearly than GE was at its peak uh, of diversity. So I, I do think that it is largely the result of market preferences, mm -hmm. investor preferences for, for more visibility. But I do think in some, in all of these cases that poor performance or other issues help to nudge them in this direction. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that the, you know, the concept of a, of, a, of a purer play, if you will, is I think the, the reality that what a lot of these large companies have done over a period of time, and I've worked in some large companies myself, mm -hmm. is that when one part of the business is, is, is down, you're hoping that another part of the business exactly. is up. And, you know, it, 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 it actually sort of protects the company in the sense that people want to see it operating in a particular range. But I think that investors' mindsets have, have, have changed, at least for the moment. And this is an exercise. Sometimes we go exactly. you know, back and forth. It's just like some companies go through centralization and then decentralization <laughs> and then recentralization. Exactly. And, and so... You know, it's, I think the tail of the tape is, is now really focused on, gee, we want to get to the core competencies of, of these entities and they should stand on their own. And one shouldn't give me less visibility to what's happening in the part of the business that I'm really interested in. Exactly. Speaking of, of, of visibility, who would have thought that <laughs> we would be in the midst of a pandemic and the big news of the day would be that Big Bird got in a fight with a United States senator. <laughs> really? I mean, yeah. you know, you know so, so this last uh. item is a fun one. In, in order to encourage parents to get their young children vaccinated and assuage any concerns that the children themselves, who five through 11 might have, and, and keep in mind, just recently, there was a Pfizer vaccine that was approved, making young people between the ages of five and 11 years old eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccine, this particular one from Pfizer. In order to sort of help with that, the Sesame Street, which receives a lot of government money, Funding, right? yeah. the PBS is, is in large measure funded through government money and uh, the production of the show as well. But they decided they used the Sesame Street character Big Bird and have him take a fictional vaccine. And then they tweeted out, you know, what Big Bird had done. It was pretty cute, pretty clever. And as, as a grandpa who has a daughter who's a granddaughter who's six years old, who <laughs> just got vaccinated, you know, I thought this is really neat. And, 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 and the interesting element is that granddaughter actually lives in Texas. And so <laughs> the tweet coming out from the folks at Sesame Street read, I got the COVID-19 vaccine today. My wing is feeling a little sore but it'll give my body an extra protective boost that keeps me and others healthy. Ms. Erica Hill even said, I've been getting vaccines since I was a little bird. I had no idea. So reference to the fact that when babies are even born, there's sort of a battery of vaccines that we give to them. Right. But that tweet was met by a tweet from U.S. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, who tweeted that this was government propaganda for your five-year-old, exclamation point. 
Gary, what do you think or make of the senator's rejoinder? So, Mike, my question would be to the senator, do you know that Big Bird is not real? And this is a U.S. senator responding to a fictional character on a children's television program. And Big Bird doesn't say you must be vaccinated. He says, I got it. It's going to give me a boost. Terrific. And by the way, I've been getting vaccines, I guess, since I was a little bird. Mike, I'm a lifelong Republican. I don't know what the Republican Party stands for anymore. Do they have a single policy or idea that is productive and, you know, supports people? Everything is reductive and negative. I just, this to me is a sign, and I'm getting a little worked up now as a, uh-huh. you know, my grandfather was uh, the mayor of the town I grew up on and ran on the Republican ticket. What is this party about? And trolling. It, it's trolling. Trolling. That's what I, it's, it's <laughs> like, we used to have some standards for the people and, and for our ideas. And now it's been reduced to this kind of silliness by a very silly man. I think an investigation needs to be called to see if he was shot in the left wing or the right wing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Ted Cruz ought to, you know, he knows a lot about using wings to fly away during a, during a crisis. So. There you go. There you go. See you in Cabo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with that, let's move on to a more serious conversation with our friend Russell Wilkerson, Baker Hughes, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer. Our guest this week on The Crux is Russell Wilkerson, Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Baker Hughes, one of the world's leading energy technology companies. Russell is one of the most respected voices in corporate communications and someone that Mike and I have known for for many years, a, a, a good friend of The Crux, I guess is the way to put it. His remit at Baker Hughes is broad and includes global communications, external affairs, community relations and brand marketing. Russ has 25 years of communication experience, including leading comms at two giant GE businesses, Energy and GE Capital. Russ, maybe we should take that GE stuff off our resume at some point. I don't know, we could talk about that. And he also led financial communications at GE during a period I would describe as sporty for the company during the global financial crisis. Russ has worked in the U.S. Senate and is a big fan of the Grateful Dead. And maybe we can work some Grateful Dead questions in here today. This fall in the crux, we've really tried to focus on the intersection of social value, business success, and all of the challenges that underlie that economically, socially, misinformation, disinformation. We want to talk to Russ about some of that today. And we also want to talk about the energy industry with COP26 just concluding in Glasgow, the Global Climate Summit. And I also want to talk about the future of in-house communications teams. So, Russell, welcome to The Crux. Well, Gary, look, thank you very much for that kind introduction. I'm really happy to be here. I've listened uh, over the years here to you and Mike, host some incredible guests and cover some amazing topics. So I'm humbled. And I will give you credit for you know teaching me many of the things that you described in the introduction. And I know Mike 
fits into that same category. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and look forward to covering uh, lots of good topics. Excellent. Excellent. We'll get more of that compliment of Gary later on, Russ. I think we'll, <laughs> we'll leave some time at the end of the podcast. But first, Russ, tell us about Baker Hughes, its product, its people. And I guess today you always have to ask about purpose. Sure. So Baker Hughes, quick overview, right? A Fortune 130-ish company. We've got 55,000 employees working in 120 countries. Uh, as you described, Gary, an energy technology company. The modern Baker Hughes is a combination of GE oil and gases assets with the legacy Baker Hughes oil field services business. We offer everything from hydrogen turbines to uh, monitors on a third of the world's wind turbines and everything in between. Subsea, we have lots of measuring and monitoring. So it's a great portfolio of true energy technology. Our purpose is to take energy forward, making it cleaner, safer, and more efficient for people and the planet. And that is something that we feel like with our technology, we have an opportunity to do. And I know we're going to talk about the industry where it's going, but certainly technology is a key player in the energy source and space today and will be even more so as we go forward. So we've got a great team of people. They're scientists, they're engineers, they're service people, and they've been in the energy space for a long time and they're excited about what they can do to help lead this transition. So great company and proud to be a part of it. You know, I, of course, know a little bit about the business from my time at GE. And some of this technology is really amazing. Like the subsea stuff, particularly Russ, I used to just, I, I was just agog at how amazing some of those things were operating in the most, the harshest environments in the world, really. And it has to be precise and it has to be safe and it has to be effective, obviously, for your customers. So I'm going to come back to Baker Hughes, but first I want to go back in time, like a little more than a decade, Russ. So if you want to mm. cry while I describe this, you know, go ahead. <laughs> Russell worked with me at GE during the global financial crisis. And hey, book publishers, if you're listening, boy, do Russell and I have stories about that period in the history of GE. And there have been some that have been written. <laughs> there have been some, and more coming, and more coming, Russ. Anyway, you were the head of financial communications for GE at the time. Were there any lessons you took away from that crisis? And, and the thing about that crisis was it went on for, for GE for a couple of years. Yeah, it's, you know, Gary, it was an intense period of time. I mean, at the time it was, you know, we were one of the largest banks or financial institutions in the country. Not many people knew that. Obviously, we had a huge industrial business, uh, a reach around the world. And we happened to own CNBC at the time, right? So it was a very strange combination of things of which, you know, you would hear about on your own network, challenges within your own business and comment back to them and see the markets <laughs> react. So it was a pretty intense period of time, complicated. You know, the financial crisis was rooted in a lot of, you know, securities, which were very misunderstood. It created a contagion, which ended up taking out a, a, lot, a lot of related institutions. But for me, from a communications point of view, and you can go back and read the history of GE Capital, fast, you know, fantastic business, but was very big and, and involved in a lot of things that ultimately showed to have significant risk. But from a communications point of view, you know, it was a new era, and I'll, I'll kind of go through it in a couple of ways. The first lesson was engagement. There was a new form of engagement that was required in this environment that we, you and myself and Beth Comstock and a few other people adopted. And that was direct engagement with the external world using new channels. Prior to that, you would never comment on a rumor. You'd let that run. 
Uh, you know, you would only give it credit if you did. And so you just lived with it. Well, the rumors became life-threatening and they were manipulated by groups that perhaps wanted to see you suffer from a rumor. Mm -hmm. And so, as you might recall, we sat down around the, your conference room table and created what was then GE Reports, which was our first you know, GE blog where we went direct to the audience and we posted our information on a daily basis, sometimes hourly basis, to respond to what was, you know, previously the 24-hour news cycle or that was accelerating that at that point in time. So taking that engagement direct to your audiences and building audiences. Yeah. Now, that required us to be the content creators and the, you know, filter but it also required us to convene legal, IR, treasury, and other related parties to look at this content real time, scrub it, ensure that whatever we were putting out there could stand the test of time. And it was a whole new way of doing things. So that's engagement. I'd say, you know, certainly from a communications point of view, we all, I think, pride ourselves on knowing the business and the facts, but you got to really know the facts. Yes. And Gary, you, you remember we had three different financial filings at GE that were each a massive, you know, Bible size version that required in that moment to know chapter and verse, what those numbers were, what they meant, the footnotes. It was, it was mind numbing the depth that we needed to dive to learn and then to be able to respond back. So I'd say that know your facts. That was a requirement for us yeah. to become, you know, PhDs in finance overnight and, and, and try to translate that externally. Finally, I would say that Communications in these moments is really the nexus of where it all comes together. And I got to tell a story about Gary Sheffer, which was, I won't say exactly what the event was, but it was material. And we were up in our, our CFO's office and we had the general counsel and our chairman was on the road calling in. And we were notified by a third party that they were going to announce something about us, which was material and significant. And we were having this discussion about what it meant, when it was going to happen. It was imminent. There was a bit of cacophony. It was intense. And Gary is very, you know, quietly sitting at the table with his laptop open saying, what are we going to say? Cacophony continued. More debate. What about this? Who's this? I mean, it was it was intense. Gary's voice. What are we going to say? <laughs> One more time. What are we going to say? We have 20 minutes to put out a statement. What do you want to say? <laughs> It's true. And everybody stops and snaps their head and looks at Gary at the computer and then gathers around his you know, back and take this, put this, put this. But it was a moment where crystallizing what you want to communicate in the moment of crisis has to be led. It has to be stated and it has to be reviewed and, and as, you know, as quickly approved by these key stakeholders. And unless you lead, you know, we typically have the pen in hand or the keyboard, at, you know, at kneeboard. You, you know, this is where communication steps in and leads in a communications, you know, in a crisis and, and delivers that moment of message in what is needed for the audiences that you're trying to reach. So, so that was a really, and to this day, Gary, I give you credit because when any, whenever there's swirl about announcing a deal or a new product or a commitment, and we'll talk about some of these, you have such differing perspectives, whether it's, you know, global or cultural or language or time zone or expertise. It, yeah. Will you copy it on paper? You, you might as well be talking about 10 different things. So mm -hmm. when you do the press release test, which you always tell me is put it in a press release. Now, whether you're ultimately lynch press release or not, let's see what it looks like. Read it. Everybody look at the same language and reference point, and then you can go from there. And that's exactly. what we do best. 
managing that. I love that idea of nexus because yeah. you do become the nexus. And thank you for bringing back some PTSD. <laughs> 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 and Russ, you know, I'll say about Russ, such a steady and smart hand, and uh, you can all see that. And that was was why I could be so calm in those moments. <laughs> well, uh, partnership. Yeah, well, well, welcome to the Crocs Rots, and my condolences for having to work with Gary. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but I love that example that you guys just went through in the sense that, you know, I think more and more companies are having to do that every day, and they're having to make real-time decisions. Yeah. And, you know, and, 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 and off of pretty complex, larger-than-life stories. I mean, as we tape this, the the Global Climate Summit COP26 is coming to an end. The eyes of the world have been on Glasgow. The Financial Times wrote this week that the meeting achieved more than expected, but less than some hoped. <laughs> Lots of concern that agreements reached won't keep global warming below the two degree centigrade called for in the Paris Agreement from back in 2015. Yet, as the chief corporate affairs officer at Baker Hughes, what's your view on what happened in Glasgow and what it might mean for you and your team at Baker? Yeah, it's a, not an easy event, right? COVID changed, you know, delayed a year. I found it very interesting, Mike, you, you know this because you're in the energy industry that, you know, COP arrived at, with the backdrop of a recent energy crisis of, you know, mm -hmm you know, gas demand in Europe, price of oil moving up to, you know, recent highs, geopolitical maneuvering. So, so you had an acute backdrop of, you know, talking about this very important transition and how the world would come together to solve this. So I give everybody that participated in that a lot of credit. I have deep respect for the intellectual, the social debates that are going on around this problem uh, and opportunity, because I'm an opportunist, to, to see where we can go, right? And COP26, I think lots of different folks, you know, coming together, and they made progress, okay? Now, now, is it perfection? No. Progress, yes. I think you look at everything from kind of methane agreements to reduce methane, which is far more dangerous to the atmosphere than carbon. You looked at deforestation, you looked at some of the financing that has been altered to, to reduce the consumption of fossil fuel. You know, we talk about language in that final version. They went from phase out to phase down and coal, yeah. which are very interesting nuances that, you know, are negotiated. We all know how these things kind of come down. Human nature takes them to the, to the midnight hour. But, you know, interesting what that means. I look at it, Mike, as we have a new, we have some specifics. We have a conversation. We have a framework that has advanced this. Okay. Now, I think you probably read, I've read that if all of the commitments were uh, reached based on the conversation COP26, we'd get to 1.8 versus 1.5. And that's not good enough, right? Because that is still very severe. So more work to be done, but you begin to see where there might be financing, where there won't be financing, where there's opportunities, the carbon credit and pricing uh, mechanisms that are needed to kind of create new markets for offsets and how you know corporations are going to do it. So I do think, you know, this is a longer term transition. I, I, I give everybody credit who participated in that. I respect the debate. I appreciate the forum. I think as energy companies, we're all, hey, we want to do our part. We get it. We understand. We're responsible. We're contributors. We can play a part in the solution. So I, I see it as a, as a very good step. Progress.
Yeah, yeah, and, and the the thing that I think is a challenge is you know everybody wants to talk about energy transition, but I'm not so certain that everybody has the same definition. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there are those on the right that are looking to protect the status quo. There are those on the left that assume that we press a button and you know all of a sudden everything changes to nirvana. But just kind of curious as to how you think, as as somebody who thinks about how your company communicates, and as you look at you know new technologies, and as you look at the role that your company plays in energy transition and the like, how do we how do we better tell the story of energy transition to better educate, I guess, both policymakers and maybe even the broader audience. You know, I look at the the role that you and, and your team at, at Baker Hughes play, and, and I just think that there's a lot more that we probably need to do across all sectors of the energy industry to better define what energy transition is all about. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Just a couple of numbers, Mike, and I think you you know this, but <clears throat> for the benefit of the audience, right? Today, I think it's, what, 600 quadrillion BTUs of energy consumed. That's projected to grow by 50% by 2050 to 900. Okay, so you have 50% growth in energy demand. Okay, that's point number one. So energy demand is only going up. Relatively flat in OECD countries, so that's interesting to think about. China grows some. The non-OECD countries grow a lot. Okay. 80 plus percent of the world's energy is provided by fossil fuels today. That is projected to be 70 percent by 2050. So this is this is EIA statistics and data. So fossil fuels are a critical part of this formula for delivering energy, which I think everybody agrees is needed and a part of life. <laughs> and critical. so you have to figure out what how you make this fossil fuel better how you create alternative energies faster that aren't on the screen you know, today and do it in a way that's gonna create jobs and is gonna be reliable and accessible by people around the world. So it is not a simple, you know, let's build more renewable kind of solution. This is a massive undertaking that I think unfortunately the, the world, and it's complex and I understand that, doesn't fully appreciate at times depending on the debate and who's actually having it. So I think what we need is, a, is an informed, you know, group to have these discussions. I think COP, you know, did a nice job of at least not demonizing, but at least focusing on the areas that they, we could all address. I think you see OPEC plus nations, you know, kind of reeling with saying, look, stop demonizing us. We're part of this solution. We're all investing in new energies. So make us, don't ostracize us as part of this global discussion. And that's really important because there's they are going to play a key role in the transition with obviously the fossil fuels, but with, with a lot of new energy investment that they're going to go through. So you've got to hold a group of people who are informed, who are constructive, and who are willing to have this conversation because many of these technologies are good. We, got, you know, we have a saying here, Mike, that says, you know, to change energy, you have to know energy, right? So, of course, there'll be outliers coming in and new ideas. But, you know, the energy industry knows what it needs to do. You know, in your case, whether it's pipelines and how you would retrofit those for hydrogens or, or, or where you might use CCUS or where you think about other applications, we have a role to play. So, you know, but we have to step up and play that responsibly. 
Yeah. You have to be well, a good and, and it's and it's interesting you use the word demonized because it's it, Gary and I talked about <laughs> uh, this hearing that took place towards the end of last month. The you know the House Oversight Committee had had and they brought the big oil producer companies in and literally even the title for the hearing was was something that i can't imagine from the days when you and i were on the hill you know it's like fueling the climate crisis exposing big oil's disinformation campaign to prevent climate action how do we get beyond that well you know it's it's it is fascinating look there there is history in this industry which is not perfect okay Mm -hmm. there have been things done that really shouldn't have been done Client science has been an evolving understanding, you know, perhaps should have been embraced by some sooner than others. So I, I understand the background and I understand some of the suspicion. And we see flare ups that happen all the time, which reinforce a negative opinion. So that is tough. That is tough. But I think it's about transparency and credibility and being somebody that's looking to provide solutions for the future. And that to me is where the, you know, where, of course, we've tried to step in and say, you know, I, I don't own the land or or the actual wells that produce the oil, but I provide all of the equipment and the technology to do that. I do it on, you know, as I mentioned, wind turbines and hydrogen turbines and those kinds of things. So we, we feel like we've got a role to play that that we want to help, you know, take this forward and be a solution. Now, you will never please all of the people because they have very purist views on what should or shouldn't be done. I understand that. I respect that. I may not agree with it based on that big transition point we made earlier. So, but I think that's where. You know, you look at BP, right? Bernard Looney came in, opened everything up. Again, you can debate from a valuation perspective or a long-term strategy perspective if that will be valuable. But he came in and opened up everything. He personalized it. He engages. Look at his LinkedIn campaign, you know, page, you know, engages with lots of people who are, are, you know, you know, attacking what they're doing based on this more pure position. And, you know, taking action, making investments, you know, being clear about what the goals are, you know, moving to more, more EV stations, charging stations, very, very clear about what this person is trying to do. Now, you can question fast enough. You can question, hey, why are you still in the legacy oil and gas? But you can question a lot of things, but you have to respect what they're trying to do. And hopefully that draws more people to the table to have more meaningful discussions. And, you know, I put my boss in that same category, very open, very accessible. We, we recognize, look, we're not perfect. And I'll say one more thing, Mike, which is the tonality is so important. Oh yeah. When you are imperious about what you think should the solution, you know, the solution should be, that tends to, you know, provoke a challenge when you're humble, when you are trying, we don't, you know, we have some of the greatest scientists in the world, but we still don't know exactly where some of these paths go. We're trying, we're investing, we're you know, we have, you know, we have our own commitments that we're upholding to do our part. So a lot of this is tonality yep. and your culture and how you show up. And that's that to me, it's just like people, right? It's like, you know, we are Absolutely. people. people. So last week, Steve Barrett at PR Week in a column entitled, Should PR Agencies Represent Big Oil? And, you know, this came a little bit in the aftermath of a, an interaction with the news story around Edelman and the fact that they were being attacked by like a coalition of uh, celebrities and activists, essentially calling on Edelman to stop representing fossil fuel companies and in particular ExxonMobil. In the piece, it was written, I totally get 
the argument that it is better for PR firms to be helping advance the, the sustainability agenda from the inside rather than withdrawing from the battle. But the actions of the oil and gas giants don't always stack up with their noble pronouncements on prioritizing clean energy and renewables. You know, as you look at kind of this argument, if you will, that's being played out for what is the largest, you know, independent public relations firm? Well, what, what's your view on this? Yeah, it, one, we've seen flurries like this before with other agencies, but I, I did note, to your point, Mike, that it, you know, drew in uh, this letter with celebrity signings. And I know the Edelman team, they're a great group of people, you know, they're top notch. So, so I appreciated watching the exchange. Now, I think more in our industry and more around the world, quite frankly, have to stand up for what they believe in. And I appreciated Edelman not, you know, they had one of two choices. They could have run from it and said, great, won't do it anymore. And again, this is their prerogative. So I'm just watching yeah. from afar. But they said, no, we actually believe in this. And what I found most impressive, Mike, was that they followed it up by, by immediately bringing in some incredible people and talent and establishing an ESG yeah. to kind of back the point, which they can play a key role in helping their clients Think about this this dialogue in a different way, or show up in a different way, or or you know change the tonality of how, how they're communicating. Not to to mask what their clients are doing, but to help them understand how to communicate in this world that is there are a lot of you know flashpoints. So I really respected what Edelman did because they not only held their ground, they didn't try to roll over and say, oh, we'll never do you know we'll never work with them again. They put in the right context. I understand the old adage, you know, the old response of better to change from within than from without. We've all seen that plenty of times, but they meant it. And they backed it up by hiring some very important people that I think can bring a lot to those clients and this issue overall. So I was rather impressed with it, to be honest with you. And I, I appreciated the defense of the industry and the, the client service relationship. Russ, your point about tonality, I, I think is so important. And Mike and I had a little conversation in the news section about language and words and culture and all, and all of those things. I'm interested in how you talk about all of this, this transition, this push and pull that's going on externally, obviously, around your industry. How do you talk about it to your own team? What do they say to you? And, and if you could, what's the commitment that Baker Hughes has made to reduce its own, to improve its own environmental performance? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I'll, I'll hit this, the second question first, because I think that lays the foundation for then how we talk about these yep. solutions and opportunities. Back in 7, 18, 18, we were one of the first in our sector to make a carbon commitment. It was 50, you know, reduction of 50% by 2030 and then net zero by 2050. And at the, at the time, that was pretty you know, progressive for, for, for an oil and gas services company and now an energy technology company to make that kind of commitment. But we felt it was table stakes, right? You can't you know, go out and try to sell solutions unless you yourself are willing to take this on. Look, some of it is symbolic, but most of it's material. I mean, we have an emissions footprint. We will measure it, monitor it, reduce it, and that's really important. But it's also, it made a huge difference to our employees and perspectives and customers, quite frankly, because it's walking the walk, right? The old walk the walk. So, so you start with some of those things that are fundamental to who you are as a company and a culture. And then I do think it gives you permission to talk about these things. You know, there are, again, there's always going to be, you know, factions that 
doesn't matter. You're in that industry, so we won't talk to you. But many people will. And and Gary, I'd say there's kind of a, a, a confluence of things driving how we talk about energy transition. There is the aspirational and how how we can bring something to that transition and do it responsibly with technology. And we're in, and we'll talk about this. You like hydrogen, CCUS, got geothermal storage. We've got a lot of things that we're really pushing and investing in. So that's exciting to us. And we really have solutions. We have ways to, to make the existing energy system better. We have remote operations, which makes us more efficient in the oil field and, and less logistics that are needed, less emissions as a result. And we've got a bunch of other things that we're making the existing system better. The other side of that, so the aspirational with solutions that are credible, mm -hmm. a foundation of what you've committed to. The other part of this is regulatory. There is a growing restriction on what you can and can't say. And we respect that. That's the regulator. And, you know, we've heard greenwashing and there's new definitions exactly. and we've all lived through evolutions of definitions that have gotten more and more disciplined or strict or, or interpreted differently. So we have to be very careful about not overstepping what is a brighter light or a brighter line from different part in different parts of the world. And, and that's, that's very important from a regulatory perspective. So we try to balance those two in a way that allows us to be who we are, but respect the, the rules and, and protocols and, you know, uh, regulations. I, I want to ask you, Russ, you know, you're in an industry that is just so complex. You do a business all over the world. And I often get asked by students, when I talk to students, how do you keep track of all of this? <laughs> Seriously, they want to know they, you know, because we talk about social acumen, business acumen, and students say, they ask me, how do you get your news? How do you yeah. keep track of all of these things? It's a question that gets asked by every group I, I speak to. How does Baker Hughes and your team, how do you keep abreast of all of this? You know, there's a couple of, I'll give you a couple of answers. So personally, my habit is to wake up at crack of dawn, like you taught me. <laughs> and and I, I peruse the usual, you know, apps it's all done through my iphone right it's it's yeah. typically a, a cnbc first for the market then it's ft for global then i come back to journal for kind of u.s business i hit axios and then i look at usually a bloomberg kind of later in the morning so that's my quick temperature check on what's going on markets kind of global kind of you know that so so that's my quick morning dose if you will now i have a a great team of world-class talent we roll up our our information, you know, quite systematically, right? So I have daily clips that come in. So that's captured by, and of course, in this day and age, there are a lot of automated tools, a lot of AI that's coming in to just capture on search yeah. words and the like. So I the feed in the morning. I have a, a weekly review with my team to kind of go over the bigger issues and how we're responding. I have sub teams that are kind of meeting off days. There is a tool that we use that I'll share with everybody and I'll give them a shout out and maybe they'll give me a commission, but it's called Airtable which is a fairly sophisticated, uh, scheduling is the wrong word because it's a much more sophisticated project management, uh, announcement management, ways that you can slice and dice. And this Airtable, Stephanie Hartgrove and my team helped us build this, is the, Gary and you and I, and Mike, I know you've sought this out, the air traffic control. Who's saying what to whom, when, where, why, and how, wow. right? Yep. And if I can put that up and I can cut it by, okay, who's talking about, you know, gas this week who's what's the employee engagement plan this week where is the external affairs engagement this week meaning events or who's out speaking i can cut i can slice and dice this any different way and it's weekly updated and then i use that to provide an elt update on a friday afternoon of 
Here's everything that, you know, in case you missed it this week. Hey, by the way, here's what's coming next week. Is it perfect? No, but is it a heck of a lot better than many oh, things I've seen? But it's it's a it's a way of life. It's digitizing how you operate, yep. and it is a rigorous discipline to ensure everybody goes into Airtable, and you start to work from it as your you know central database, if you will. So it, it does work. And to your point about keeping all the things moving, I have you know 120 countries. I've got multiple businesses who are operating somewhat independently sometimes, in a good way. So I need to coordinate all this stuff, and then then the messaging comes into it of discipline and consistency and alignment. Wow. Just, uh, yeah. you know, it's, that is so amazing from where, uh, and I'll have to look at Airtable from where we were. I remember starting at GE with the, you know, thick, you know, New York city phone book pack eclipse we would send around every day. And oh, the old we, days, uh, we thought we were so good. And speaking <laughs> of that, Russ, I, I want to turn to what's sort of next for Corpcom over the past few years, of course, you've got a broad remit, you've, you've had that, but the expectations for in-house communicators have grown substantially across business portfolios and to include much more of a social cultural outlook kind of role. So I asked you recently as part of one of the things I was doing with students, what skills and capabilities you would look for in people you would hire onto your team, given the disruptive events of the past few years, you wrote this to me, digital, 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 including <laughs> storytelling, targeting, writing, analytics, visuals, campaigns, commercial and marketing partnerships. For example, you said the ability to craft a digital story and build audiences and influence on LinkedIn is becoming more valuable than traditional media. I was really interested in that last point particularly about platforms such as LinkedIn. Can you tell us why you, you feel that way? Yeah, you know, if you think about, I'll touch on a couple of those things, which is I have, we have Baker Hughes, almost 2 million, maybe 1.7 million followers, right? I don't know what the latest, you know, circulation numbers, if they wow. even use those. That's names. a lot. You know, in, you know, pick your tier one outlet. And so you, you, it's a large audience who opted to follow you. They're interested. And LinkedIn, to its credit, has maintained an air of, of, of professionalism and constructive exchange. It hasn't devolved into you know, some of the other channels, which have become much more emotional and heated. So it allows you to present yourself to, a, to an audience that you really are trying to reach. I mean, I, I love the general public, and I want to build my brand in many ways, but I really care about you know, these audiences, whether they're customers or, or employees or, or prospective employees, so I can target in a much more effective way. And there is a way in which you do that. It, it requires a calendar. It requires a, an arc of what you're trying to achieve over what period of time with what content. It requires a visual understanding of what is interesting and what isn't. It, it requires a, a brevity of, of content that is pointed and covers your point you're trying to make, but isn't boring and you know, hopefully not like me, you know, too, too long windy. Um, it's, it's, you know, quick, it's sharp. It's, it's, and then there's all the back of the house systems, which are measuring, you know, as I try to reach Mike and Gary, are they looking at this? Do they like it? Do they want more? Do they want to hear from us about this topic going forward? So it's a much more multidimensional, you know, medium that allows us to, to, to think differently about engagement over a longer period of time. So the communications function of today has to have, I would say the the essentials which have always been there: good writing, curiosity, 
judgment. You know, uh, you and I have always talked, Gary, about business, you know, acumen, being under, you know, really understand what, you know, mm-hmm. language of business numbers. You better understand what drives the top and bottom line. But then I'd say there's a digital, there's a digital mindset. And I, you know, I, I'm familiar with the TikToks and, you know, obviously the Instagrams and all these other channels. Oh, we can catch that, you dancing on, on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's amazing what those things. But I am also amazed. I have a, a very professional friend of mine who referred, told me that that is where he's going for his news source these days. Now, I'm a little worried wow. about him. But but but, uh, but there is there are pockets of real material sure. information that are available in a different format that, that is gathering and attracting large audiences. So you better know now – if I'm trying to sell, you know, a hydrogen turbine, TikTok is probably not going to be my channel. But if I'm looking at talent, young talent coming out of a, a university who I want to attract as a technologist to, you know, think about leading the energy transition, you may very well find them there. So, um, and you, in fact, you will find them there. So, it's. It, it, I really think these digital channels, and it's a different psyche. Yeah. It's not press release, push and send, you know, I'll read the clips kind of, it, it's an ongoing refinement of some of these skills, awareness of how they work. Uh, you know, we've heard about, you know, ComTech and all those, there are systems elements to it and it's hard. It's not, it, you know, you think some of this stuff is, you know, make it shorter, make it punchier, you know, package it, you know, produce it, whether it's, you know, desktop tools that you can whip this out in a matter of seconds or whether it's, you know, there's a lot to it and it's fascinating. So yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. Now that we're on the, the education kick here, I know that you earned your MBA at Johns Hopkins. There was a New York Times piece that, this, this past week that got into the fact that more and more of the kind of premier business schools around the globe are, are offering like an explosion of new courses that are ESG related. And the article makes the point that the demand for workers who understand ESG is growing. And uh, I'm just kind of curious, are, are you seeing that? I know that the discussion piece that there's certainly a lot more ESG interest directly from investors coming in, analysts coming in than there was a decade ago. But is there that demand, for instance, in your shop for, for more people with expertise in ESG and ESG disclosure? Absolutely. And and I'll, I'll explain kind of the similarity to the MBA. When I went to work for Gary as a financial communicator, there was a development of, you know, these the, the audiences started to overlap, whether it was retail or, or institutional, but the channels started to overlap. The audiences started to overlap. So you you needed to understand what was of interest to those audiences, what were they looking for, working with IR teams, being smart about valuations and financial statements and those things. So the classic, so I went to get my MBA because I wanted that classic, you know, toolkit so I could translate some of these things in a broader communications way and work with IR teams and others. It's the same thing with ESG, which is there are new audiences that are overlapping that are looking for specific ESG-related topics. I would say ESG is core to all of our strategies, so it's not new, but it might be in the packaging. It might be in the outreach. It might be in the timing. It might be in how you describe these things. And much like an MBA you know, can teach you about all the different terminology in finance, the ESG learning, there is a plethora of, of <laughs> standards and expectations. And it is, you, you both know it, it is, it is really hard to understand what are the standards, 
who's leading the standards. And that's a whole education unto itself. So understanding the landscape and who you're trying to reach. Mike, I would also add that a lot of the ESG, certainly on the rating side, they have adopted kind of this, you know, automatic research capability where they may not call you directly, but they'll go hunt all of your websites and your filings yeah. and your social channels. So you, you need to be thinking about that content creation in a way that's respectful of the ESG audience or targeted to the ESG audience. And the final thing I will, I'll, I'll mention is that, you know, helping some of the ESG related groups internally, there are a lot of owners of this. So communications can be a good collaborator, convener of what the message is. You can produce it through corporate citizens reports. You can use it for your website. So it's a great function to bring all that together and to, to humanize some of these stories. Yes, there's, there's the auditing and the numbers that are required and the standards that you know, are, are targeted to certain groups. But there's also a human element to this. I mean, all of those relate to human elements that you want to dimensionalize for your internal right. and external. So it, it does require, and I actually have somebody on my team who is now dedicated to that, has gotten two degrees of which I have, you know, as the company has happily supported him wow. to go do that. And he is an expert, you know, translating that internally to a lot of the stakeholders here. And he's externally representing us in, in neat ways and working. We actually have a sustainability group working with that sustainability group to figure out the right ways to tell, you know, our stories and get our messages out. So it's, it's a great question. And it's one I'm just trying to keep pace with as a communications leader. So I can, this is big. So you have to really understand it. That's so smart, Russ, the, the person on your team with that kind of capability back when all of this began to emerge as CSR, right? A lot of us were completely ignorant to use, you know, it, it's a it's a harsh word, but it's true about all of the things that you talk about, about UN sustainability goals. I mean, it, there are so many things that you need to just be conversant. It's no different, as you say, than having some business acumen around how the balance sheet works and, and, and all of that. And it's, and it's completely necessary today. Yeah, and Gary, to, you know, to, to Russ's point, I mean, there are, there are very specific standards that at least lots of analysts are trying to push people towards. Yes. And, and, and some people have embraced those and others haven't. Yeah. Just like those of us who, who really want to play in this space are filing against what are called sustainability counting standards boards standards yes. Yes. so sasb standards <laughs> and, and and then you also have you know a, another set of standards that have been created by yet another group you know gri so a lot of us have gotten familiar with what gri is looking for and the gameplay you know the, the field of play is changing all the time all the more reason to have somebody who's expert in this yeah boy mentioning fasb mike you know boy that brings back I'm just, I, I love talking about FASB. Well, this is SASB. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. SASB now. So it, okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, to your point, Sustainability. It's, it's <laughs> related to the, you know, accounting standards. So it's yeah. it's exactly, there's their cousins of standards. Right, yeah, it's, right, okay. right. And there's, there, you know, the SEC is looking at certain convergences of these. So you, you have a, things are evolving quickly and you want to follow and meet the right standards that make sense for your strategy and your business and your stakeholders. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a lot. Well, Russ, this has been a great conversation and, and a demonstration of how I, I would say multidimensional you are as a communicator and as a leader in, in an organization that, as I said, is complex, highly technical, and really in the middle of maybe one of the biggest debates that's going on in the world right now. Certainly over the last few months, it's been in the center of that. And that's why you're 
your your logic and common sense and judgment is is quite apparent. So thank you for being on the crux, and and uh, good luck with everything you guys are doing down at Baker Hughes, our old friends from GE, and thanks also for bringing up again some of the things we went through in the financial crisis. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the therapy I'm going through is working, though, Russ. Uh, I just want you to know. So, 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 I, so I take it it's nap time, Gary? It is nap time now, yes. First, I'll take my medicine, and then I'll take a nap. <laughs> I, I, I thank you all for having me. You know how honored I am, Gary. Love love working for you, and I, you taught me everything I know. Mike, I know you've taught many people in this uh, industry all the right ways to how to be a communications leader. So thrilled to be here. Love to come back. We can talk energy all day long. It's a fascinating topic that really matters. So uh, communications is a key part of that transition, as Mike referenced earlier. And there's a lot to it. So it's exciting. I'm an optimist. Technology is going to solve this. Thanks, Russ. Thank you, Russ. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.